Perinatal Stories Australia. Welcome to Perinatal Stories Australia. My name is Rebecca, and every episode we provide a listening ear to the lived experiences of mental illness during pregnancy and postpartum. I hope this podcast reduces stigma, informs listeners about support services available, and inspires those on their own healing journey. More importantly, I hope you can hear these stories and know you're not alone. Thank you for being here to hold space for the stories we often keep to ourselves. Welcome back, everyone. I'm joined today by the very beautiful Mon, who is here to share her incredible story. Thank you for having me. <laughs> so, yeah, your your experience came around your traumatic birth, and I was wondering if yes. you wanted to talk to us about that and how that impacted you, how that all felt. Ooh, let's go down the rabbit hole. <laughs> yeah, big topic. <laughs> yeah, so my husband and I were trying to conceive for one and a half years in total. Um we we did a lapscopracy and found I had stage one endometriosis, which was interesting um, because I don't have any of the typical symptoms. So when I've always gone through infertility screening and I didn't have painful periods or anything like that, it was very much glossed over. So I think that's why it took our specialist. That was the first thing he said. He's like, let's just test. If it's nothing there, then we can do IVF. Um, we're given three months to try. And on the third month we fall pregnant. So we kind of felt like, yeah, he was so lucky. Um, a very uneventful pregnancy. I, I'm a very, and probably a lot of your listeners can relate to this. I'm a perfectionist type A. And unfortunately, I think we're more prone to mental illness because we favor control and all that. So I really wanted to make it a point that I trust the medical professionals and I trust that they're going to tell me if anything was wrong or if anything was going to happen. And that was a big thing for me to do. I've had a history of anxiety and depression in the past. So I did seek out my therapist during pregnancy for that support because I went, well, probably going to happen, but if it doesn't, that's great. But if it does, I have the support in place that I need. I went and saw a physiotherapist and began, I guess, preparing my body down that sense. So I felt that I was pretty prepared. I felt like that I surrounded myself with a really good team. So I felt really prepared and really safe going into it. Um, by about 35 weeks, I just went for a sizing sample. And my son, Levi, was showing full term at 35 weeks. So like, he's a big baby. When I spoke to my obstetrician about it, she said, look, we're going to induce you at 38 weeks. It wasn't a, would you like to be induced? It was, we're going to induce you. And I went, no, I don't really feel comfortable with that. What are my options? And then it was very much uh, no more dialogue really happened of my options. It was like, okay, well, we're just going to aim for a vaginal birth and that's all good. And as a bit of pretext, we, we were quite open to cesarean. My husband has herbs palsy, which he became stuck when he was in the birth canal and has now permanent nerve damage in his arm. So we were quite aware of the risks associated with having a big baby. And so that then went, okay, well, they would tell us if we couldn't do this. So everything must be okay. I had a stretch and sweep in the end um, at 39.2 days, and that did kickstart labour. So ended up going to the hospital quite early on 
because my contractions came on quite quickly. It was one minute rest, one minute contraction, one minute rest. And as a first time parent or both of us first time parents, this isn't normal. This is supposed to be later on what's going on and the hospital said oh look it's up to you you can come in if you like and we said well it's just best to check to make sure everything's okay um so we went in they strapped me up and they went oh bub's heartbeat's dropping every now and then not consistently but every now and then so you're only two centimeters but we're not going to send you home and you can't get off the bed so i labored away eventually opted for an epidural um, that worked for about an hour and then I regained full feeling, except not full enough that I could actually move around, but I could feel everything. Uh, the anaesthetist came back in. He was basically saying, well, I've done it correctly. She obviously can't handle herself. So just up the dosage and we'll see how we go. So that went on for about three hours. And I think if even that just happened, I think I would have even had a bit of scarring mentally after that, just been not be able to do anything from that. But that happened. My obstetrician came in and was like, what are you doing? Get another anaesthetist and reinsert it now. So by the time they get up there, blah, 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 it was done. Great. I had about an hour break and then I regained feeling in my left side. (laughs) So after I went through that, then they checked me when I regained feeling and they said, look, you're nine centimeters. We'll start pushing in an hour. It's going to be fine. Okay, I'm at. I'm almost there at the finish line. It's only been eight hours since start to finish, so excellent. Um, start pushing, and my physio taught me a different way of how to push, and basically it was just um, almost like, I guess they say breathing your baby out. So mm-hmm. it's just instead of holding your breath, which will make you quite fatigued quite quickly, it's just breathing through your contractions while pushing. And so I started doing that. And the midwife next to me just went, stop doing that. What are you doing? Hold your breath and push. And I was okay. (laughs) Like a scolded schoolgirl. So I just did as I was told. And I got Levi down to crowning point and didn't progress fast enough. And they said, right. They went to my husband. Um, He's stuck and we need to get him out. And we both just went and do what you need to do just do what you need to do and get him out and getting safe and that's a moment I relive quite regularly because this is where you start to put the self-blame on yourself and you think if only I told them no like do something different roll me on my side or tell that midwife to get out of the room but when you're in that moment you just you just want it to be over and you just want everyone to be okay and you trust the medical professionals to know what they're doing and to help you so Um, they ended up using forceps and pulled him out and that's kind of where that light action pretty much turned my world upside down because overall from that just as a little preview I ended up getting a 3c tear it's basically right down to the bum millimeters away from ripping it open completely it's a few muscle fibers left over essentially I had a partial Livier revulsion on my right side. So what that means is my pelvic floor has been ripped from the bone on the right-hand side. And I also suffered a massive postpartum hemorrhage of 3.3 litres. And to put that in context, the human body has about five litres, maybe six litres if you're pregnant. So it all happened very quickly. Um, Before I knew all that, though, they lifted him up and we saw he was a boy and I gave him his name. I'm too sorry if I cry through this part. Don't I would be get very sorry. emotional. <laughs> so um so they placed him on my chest and I'm just I think any moment if you get that moment, you're like, oh my gosh, I did it, we did it, we're here. 
and I'm just holding him and I start to get very cold and I know um, they gave me episiotomy. She told me that she was doing that. So I knew she was stitching me up. And I said, oh, is it going to be much longer? And she's like, oh, we've got a bit to go. And I went, okay, because I'm getting really cold. I'm getting really cold. And at that moment, Code Blue was called. Levi was ripped off my chest and thrown in my husband's arms. He was told to sit in a corner, sign these documents, which, of course, he didn't read. It was just sign whatever he was put in front of him. Um, and I was wheeled away. And the way I describe it is if you've seen in TV shows or the movies where you have the lights passing overhead as someone is wheeled down a corridor, I looked up and that's what I saw, just these lights, just one, two, three, just passing overhead. And I I couldn't speak at this point. My body was essentially numb. I could turn my head, but I, I was really, yeah, um, I looked I looked to the midwives and they look scared. And when the people looking after you look scared, you know that it's it's not going to be okay. And they were screaming at me saying, Monique, wake up, wake up, Monique, stay with me, stay with me, Monique. And like holding my hand and getting me to squeeze it. And I couldn't. And at that point I went, oh, I'm going to die. And um, I had a moment of clarity and I went, right. Um, I got to hold my son. I got to give him his name. And Mitch is going to be a really good dad without me. It's going to be fine if I die. And that's not it. Yes, it's a moment of clarity, but that is not an easy thing to sit with. No. It took a while to admit that actually happened to me, actually. So in the three months postpartum, I couldn't admit that that's actually what I thought because I thought I was overreacting and it took a lot to admit that it's okay to admit that you were scared and if not that you thought you were going to die, but it was a medical emergency and you were going to die if something wasn't done. Mm. And that's why they were rushing. <laughs> um, so I, I basically was just surrendering to that fact and accepting my doom. <laughs> um, got down to theatre and and anaesthetist grabbed my hand and he squeezed it really hard and he said, Monique, my name is, I forgot his name now, but he goes, we're going to save you. We're going to save you. And to hear that as a last thing before you get passed out, I, it was the most comforting thing because I just went, okay, I'm going to be okay. And, yeah, after when I was, I was ventilated as well. So I spent that night in ICU ventilated. Um, I woke up a couple of times, unfortunately, being ventilated. And if that's ever happened to anyone else, it's quite terrifying because you feel like you can't breathe. So when I fully awoke the next morning or afternoon, I don't know, it's it was quite surreal because I'm there and I could, it was just, I was just drowsy and couldn't really understand what was going on. I had five units of blood transferred at that point. And the doctors came in, were basically like, yes, this is what's happened to you. You've had a 3C tear. You've lost this much blood, blah, blah, blah. And all I say is, where's my baby? I understand you to tell me this, but where's my son? Is he okay? And my husband came down and told me he was okay. And we just cried because from my understanding, from his perspective, and we kind of often forget about the husband or the partner watching all this in the background. He was he was there, obviously there, cut the cord for the birth, and he just said, you wouldn't stop bleeding. It was just the whole floor was red. It was just a river. And then they basically, when they threw him in the corner 
he was just sitting there in shock holding Levi as the nurses just came in and started just mopping up the blood and that's how they measure the blood they mop it up and then put it in a bucket and they weigh the bucket in the end and they kept just saying to him are you okay (laughs) he's just like I think so and then he had to be with Levi the whole night and they didn't he didn't I gave birth at around 7 30 and he didn't know I was okay until about 10 o'clock so for him to be alone with bub doing all those without me and not knowing if I was okay or not he was terrified so that's that's something that I think we should acknowledge so that's the birth story. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So that, that next day I spent in ICU and I couldn't, I couldn't feed myself, couldn't really do anything. So they ended up bringing Levi down in the afternoon and I held him in my arms and tried to breastfeed. And um, Mitch and Levi stayed with me until 11 o'clock at night where they told him he had to go back up to the maternity ward, which is I'm very thankful for that they allowed him to stay as long as he did because I don't think that was actually allowed, but I think, I don't know if they just gave an allowance at that point so I'm so thankful for that and the next morning I I still couldn't feed myself and I was waiting for Mitch to come down but he didn't come down and so I went right I've got to do this Um, so the nurses helped me to the chair and they told me I shouldn't be sitting in the chair for longer than half an hour Um, they ended up leaving me there for two and a bit hours and I don't fault them for that because if you saw what it's like in ICU they didn't have enough staff on and so they were obviously caring for someone that needed that urgent care. But still, just I had to sit there with my catheter overflowing, trying to hold a spoon. <laughs> and my room was right down the hallway, so I could look down the hallway. And I just kept staring the whole time, just waiting to see my baby and my, my husband come to me. But it didn't happen until um, I actually went up there in early afternoon when I was discharged. Yeah. So they they just wheeled the bed straight up, essentially. and. I couldn't get out of the bed for a couple of days. I just didn't have the strength. So everything was done for me when Levi was brought over. And when when I did need to go to the bathroom, I basically had a nerf on either side of me and had to use them for full support to go to the bathroom, which was scary. <laughs> um, it was a dark experience because I guess being a first-time parent, we're all kind of ignorant to know what that, first week postpartum is really like but when I, I guess those who've had any sort of experience where they're bedridden even from cesarean and you see your partner just crying holding your bub just trying to get them to calm down do do something that we don't know what we're doing and you're just in bed going I can't do anything but be here and that broke me because I just I'm a doer. I like to help. I like to be productive. And basically to the point where I started to internalize this thought process of I couldn't even deliver my baby properly. I couldn't, I can't even help him now. The only thing I could do, and that's, I threw everything I could into breastfeeding because I felt that was the only thing I could do to help anyone. There was nothing else I could do. I guess my question is mentally, how are you coping? Yeah, I went numb and like anyone that would do anything for me, I would profusely thank them and go, thank you, thank you so much. I'm so blessed to have you with me. Thank you. And I would I would freeze. I made myself go numb just to survive where it was like, okay, my job is to feed him and I'm going to do that to the best of my ability. I'm going to feed him. And I didn't I didn't understand the damage that had been done at the time. They, they just told me numbers like 3.3 litres. And I went, oh, okay. I didn't compute what that even meant. It just went, it's a lot of blood. Okay. 
And um, I remember on day three I broke and there was this midwife there who'd also had a third-degree tear when she gave birth to her bub. So I think I really connected with her quite strongly because she could actually identify and describe everything that I was feeling physically. And they were like, oh, it's the three-day blues. But then she kind of stepped in and was just like, it's more than that. It's the shock of mourning what didn't happen and mourning what did happen. Mm. And I think the first three months postpartum was really just processing and the shock of the birth itself where it's it's not just, I, I don't think for us, it was not just mourning what had happened and saying that like, oh, we didn't get the birth that we want. Mm. For, uh, for us, it was the shock of, I guess it's the shock that we almost died. Like mm. I almost died and that our family unit that we were so excited for almost didn't exist. Mm. And it's the same for anyone who had a close call or did lose someone in the process. It's that shock of, and, and the fear of how delicate life is. And we, we just weren't prepared for it. So even returning home, we had things set up a certain way and we had to move everything because the first week I was in hospital, like I said, I couldn't move by myself. Um, on my day of discharge, which was six days postpartum, I was determined and it took me about half an hour to walk out of the maternity ward because I was hanging onto the wall by myself as Mitch held Levi mm. and I was shuffling down the hallway. But I was determined, I'm like, I'm going to leave this hospital on my own. The second week, I could walk maybe five minutes at a time. The third week, 10 minutes, fourth week, 20 minutes and so on. So I made that my goal saying every time I'm going to stand up or walk an extra 10, five minutes each time. And I think that's what kept me going in those first days because I felt like because I didn't really understand the full scope and long-term impact of my injuries, I felt like I've just got to get through X, Y, Z and I'll get better. Like this this has an end point. Yeah. And I think that at, at, at that point my therapist basically stepped right in and began intensive therapy with me twice a week just to kind of help me process what happened and admit things that happened because I try to uh, explain things away quite easily and and minimise things. So she really put a mirror up to me and went, no, this is what happened. You're showing all the symptoms. You're doing everything. That's casebook PTSD. You've got PTSD. When I think about my postpartum journey, it is broken up into sections where I do have the initial trauma of birth And then I have, when I became diagnosed with PTSD, postnatal depression and anxiety is when I got my diagnosis of prolapse and I really understanding what a 3C10 meant. And also then it wasn't really until closer to the three month mark that I admitted that I I I almost died. And then that was a processing part of that as well. I guess any questions before I yeah please um (laughs) I guess you're in survival mode in that early postpartum period what were the symptoms that you experienced that made it clear to you that you were not okay I guess for me it was a total pretty much total despair where I couldn't comprehend what would happen the next day let alone the next hour and I was essentially living minute by minute constant fear I had, it was, it was actually, I do admit, it was hard to diagnose with me because, because I was living day to day, minute by minute, 
what I presented to the world really depended on what I was feeling in that exact moment. So my therapist actually had a hard time diagnosing in the beginning because if I had a good morning and then I went to therapy, I was really optimistic and overly bubbly and it's like almost erratic. Mm. Um, But then like there would be a trigger and I would spiral so deep where I would have suicidal thoughts and contemplate and daydream about if I just died perhaps on that table, all this this pain wouldn't be here. It was very, very erratic behaviour. I often would just fall on the floor crying, begging Mitch to just explain to me what happened, how am I going to get through this and what am I, what am I to do now? So the most common one I had was really vivid flashbacks, which was really hard because obviously when you got a newborn, every time he woke up and I'd feed him and pop him back down, I'd lay back down and just relive the whole moments of, laying on that bed like that was because that was such a pinnacle part of my experience and that accepting death for me it's it's just changed my soul and so reliving that moment was quite common I had like nightmares were very common so when I did finally get to sleep there was nightmares what what came later on for me especially postpartum and after that three month point where I had my diagnosis of prolapse is my trauma became really closely associated with my physical body where I think trauma is something that it just it changes you physically emotionally and mentally mm-hmm. it's just everything about you changes so physically I would have a slight twinge in my body and it would send me spiraling there was one time I remember I wouldn't go to sleep at all because I had a slight pain in my chest and it was the same pain I experienced when I felt myself bleeding out and I thought if I go to sleep I'm not going to wake up and so I pretty much stayed awake that whole night until I basically passed out from exhaustion at about 5 or 6 a.m. I guess my GP thought I was having more postnatal anxiety and depression because I would have anxiety attacks and I would have the symptoms of nausea or trembling or sweating and think that like so I'm basically reliving a nightmare. (laughs) It was constantly being vigilant and I guess that's the fight response coming out but then I would freeze. Like another point I remember where I had a trigger which it's hard because you need to be aware and understand things, but there needs to be a way you deliver it. But when I really first understood what happened to me with a three C tear, I had um I'd gone out for a walk that day, and if you remember, June July last year was still in the La Nina torrential forever rain. Mm. So, um, but I was, I was determined I'm going to go walking every single day, and so I went out. And it started to rain. And of course, I couldn't walk that fast to get out of the rain. So I had to find shelter in a park. And I was waiting for the rain to pass. And I was watching a video and it explained what a 3C tear was. And when I finally realized what had happened to me physically and what that meant for my long-term recovery, I shut down. And I just remember sitting in the park, raining and crying and shaking. And essentially just having a panic attack meltdown in in middle of public. And I couldn't control it. And I think that's what was hardest for me, that I could identify a lot of the time what I was feeling. I could say, yes, I can feel the the tenseness in my shoulders. I can feel my breath just like disappearing. I'm about to have a panic attack and I still couldn't do anything about it. It's I just had to let it come on. And that lack of control, um, 
pretty much defined my um, period of life at that time. Other other ways it kind of surfaced as well, I found that I I was fearful of everyone. I didn't trust medical professionals. I I was, but I was also just desperate for someone to look after me. And for me, it just felt like my life was over because everything that I knew, my whole identity where I used to love doing Pilates and yoga and even that didn't feel good anymore. I felt like my body wasn't my own and I was in some shell of an existence now. I felt I didn't feel like me and I, I still don't feel like me today. I know that when we have children that it changes us forever, but the how profound that is of the life I knew I'm never going to get back mm-hmm. and maybe I'll get to do some things again that I love, but it was this overwhelming sense of grief that I had and it, that just sent me just set me down. The, the hardest part, which really, um, there's a couple of times where my therapist was ready to admit me to a mum and bub centre. Um, I believe there's a new one that just got opened up at Westmead. There is. Um, yeah. Thank, yeah. So she was following up to have um, me admitted there a couple of times, but my parents had come down and they stayed with me during both those periods. So they essentially became my nurses while I looked, I could look after bub. Because I guess for any of your listeners that have or are going through this, it's we don't have the luxury of our partners staying home and becoming our carers. We, we we have to get money. We have to pay the bills. And it's kind of fallen back on us saying, yes, we need to recover ourselves. We need to go to our appointments um, and we have to do it alone. Mm-hmm. I fa- Another hard point I found, I would have friends or family that would reach out and say, we're here to support you. If anything you need for you to go to appointments, let me know. And I would, oh, but I'm busy that day. I'm sorry. Which I, I don't expect them to drop everything for me. And I think I, I kind of had to remind myself that quickly, but I rarely ask for help. Mm. And so if I'm asking for help, I really need it. And so I think it's really, it's a hard pill to swallow that a lot of people offer their services and help as a tokenistic of making themselves feel good. And this is a bit of a pessimistic note, but I find it very self-serving, a lot of people offering help. But when you actually ask for it and accept it, it's really followed through with. And I think that that really contributed to the loneliness that I felt. I was so desperate just to feel part of a community that understood what happened, the intensity of what I was currently feeling and that I wasn't alone. In terms of that psychologist, that was the same one you'd seen throughout pregnancy? Yeah, that's right. I was really thankful that my psychologist, I've got a pretty good relationship with. I've been seeing her for about seven years. Mm. And we mainly do CBT therapy. So through this PTSD experience, we mainly relied on talk therapy and exposure because it had worked for me in the past. Yeah. So we really focused on that as an avenue of my recovery. Was that helpful? And how was that helpful for you? I found at times yes and times no, Hmm. mainly because they only know a snapshot. And because I was presenting in a different method every single day, I had to really... I felt like I had to show her the depth of what I was feeling. So I had to take it upon myself to do a lot of things to show her. For example, um, I ended up taking a two-week journal of just writing down a sentence every single day of what was happening. And it was erratic. And that's the point where she was like, I've rung the centre. We're going to put you in a mama bum centre. Like, you're not okay. Yeah, so it it was helpful in a way where I could really make sense of what happened and 
I guess my background, I really thrive on understanding what's actually happened. But when it came to then at the end of the hour, when you understood what happened, then you have to go away and do the work. And that's kind of where the loneliness started because I didn't feel strong enough to do it on my own. Mm. And I would just, within a day, I would have so many emotions where sometimes I would just be crying on the floor. I'll pop my bub to bed. I'll crumple onto the floor in the corner and just cry and cry and cry until he woke up. And then I would stand up, dry my tears and go back to being that again. It was, it was just survival. Like every day was just survival. And so this is testing my memory here. You yeah. did talk therapy maybe six months and I vaguely remember you messaging me around the start of this year to say, I think I need to go talk to my GP about starting medication. Am yes. I remembering that correctly? Yeah, definitely. Um, that was at my low point. So I mentioned before that it was really heavily tied to my prolapse and my symptoms of prolapse. So if anyone's out there had to do with getting a pessary before, it's not fun. And it not only, I, I think like I do need to focus on this because we are talking about an organ that's so primal, that's so identifying as a woman that basically brought life into this world and now it's essentially falling out. <laughs> I'm quite lucky where I have stage one prolapse, but it's quite mobile. So what that means is if I do any excessive activity, there's a chance that it will get a lot worse. And because I have a partial alleviator avulsion, the chances are that when I go into menopause, that it's going to get significantly worse. Um, that's just the reality of it. So it's this impending idea that I'm basically never going to get better. It's I can manage it. But it's it. I'm never going to go back to way it was before because there's no muscle on the bone. It's gone. Mm. So I was coming terms with that, and if any sort of pain of I was trying to get a, a, the correct pessary fitted, um, I'd go for a walk, and it would just be this heavy stinging sensation of just that it's it's going to fall out, <laughs> and it was so painful, and I would bleed, and it would ache, and when you just have like this part of you that feels so broken, it feels like the whole of you is broken. And on top of that, because of my 3C tear, I was basically incontinent fecally and urine as well. So I couldn't leave the house until I had basically done my business. Otherwise, I might not make it. And so I've got to this point where it was... I, I didn't know what else to do and I was in this hole of I'm not going to make it. And then my son started daycare and I get the daycare illnesses. Mm -hmm. And when that hit, that basically brought on all my symptoms again because I, I was out of control of my body. I was, we had basically within a month RV, RSV, gastro twice, and I'm pretty sure some sort of tonsillitis there. So it was essentially like would have two viruses at the same time. Mm. And it was just it was just hell. And I had to go in nappies, essentially. And I just didn't feel human anymore. It was to that point where I I just didn't know how how I could continue if this was what the rest of my life was going to look like. 
And when I did speak to, say, my physio or my OS, OASI specialist, they would say, we don't know what the full extent of your injuries are and how you're going to recover. Give it 18 months. And I remember sitting there going, how, how can I understand what I'm going to be like in 18 months when I don't even know what tomorrow is going to look like? And so then at the start of the year that I went to my GP and she'd been encouraging me for a while that she wanted me to start Zoloft and I was very hesitant. And so I did start and then I had all GI issues. I was still breastfeeding at the time and I couldn't drink, I couldn't eat. I Everything just made me sick and so then I got even sicker. I was recovering from a previous bout of gastro, so I was even sick from that. Um, and then I pretty much took myself to hospital to just go on an IV drip because I was so dehydrated and I couldn't physically recover. I couldn't drink enough fluids to really function. And I almost passed out that morning. And that's when I was like, oh, I better go. And so I drove myself to the hospital. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and so, yeah, it's, I, so I only was on that for a few days and that pretty much triggered me even more. So since then, I've basically just gripped my teeth and bear it. <laughs> I I stopped taking Zoloft but yeah I think if I was if I was able to I definitely would have because it hasn't been an easy journey trying to come out of that without any help whatsoever except therapy like talk therapy yeah and I mean you've just also gone past your one-year anniversary if I'm correct yeah and <laughs> that's right yeah yeah um I guess it's it's gone too quickly and not in a good way. It's one one task my therapist told me is she's like, you're not going to remember a lot of this. A lot of people don't remember much anyway, but just because your body just naturally tries to forget as much as possible. She told me to take as many photos as possible. So I've just been spamming. <laughs> my phone is full, but it's nice because I look back and I go, I actually don't remember that day. I don't remember anything of what happened then. And to look back and know that it happened, I can st- I can relive some of those happy times and some of the, the happy memories that I recorded. That's, that's comforting. So a year on, it was hard leading up to the day and I didn't want to celebrate a first birthday. And I pretty much made it my point that I wasn't going to and if we were going to have a first birthday, which we did, um, it was my husband's job to plan the whole thing. And he did, he did a great job, but the hard parts, I believe it came unexpectedly that you just have these moments of overwhelm where everything will be fine and normal. And then there'll be a slight trigger and you just spiral and be crying for a few days. And then you'll come out of it again and go, Oh, what happened there? It's really uncontrollable how this is where you think you're fine where I was telling people leading up to the day yeah I'm doing really well like this is great um I think I'm going to come out of this unscathed like everyone's saying the first year is terrible but I'm fine (laughs) and one of my friends who's also had birth trauma she said look just be be kind give it time be kind and yeah that the week after the birthday is when it was the hardest and I think that was because that's after when the trauma happened so it wasn't the lead up it was the post event and the week after which was the hardest and darkest and that's when I would sit here and go oh this time last year this is what I was doing and that's when it really hits home you have the guilt afterwards and the shame because you think you're better and you think you've overcome it and you're like, you know what, I've done so well and it's all going to be great now because look how far I've come, look how far we've come. It's We're functioning just like any other normal family out there that's had a normal birth in quotation marks. And so you just, 
you mourn that and you feel guilty and you grieve everything that was lost and everything that you're now remembering was lost. It's it's a very humbling experience again and again and again. <laughs> and it's so easy to, you're in that moment and you're hit with that overwhelm and you think this will never get better and I'm going backwards, but then you get through it again and then it happens again, but then you get through it again and it sucks. It absolutely sucks. <laughs> but it is that reminder that one step back, you know, at least I've come two steps forward kind of thing. And it's um, it's hard to think in the moment because when you do take that one step back, it feels like you've fallen down the canyon. Like you think like, yep, two steps forward and fall down a cliff. Yeah. It's, it's not, but then when you've come out the other side, I, I still feel like you go back to the same level of grief that you were in, mm. even in those very early days. But as time goes on, you bounce back better. You get more resilient in the point that you can pick yourself up again quicker. Mm. You get, it gets, it gets easier to recover as opposed to how low you get because I still feel like when I'm low it's it feels like I'm just back in that hospital bed again not able to move it's Mm. it feels just as raw yeah and in terms of those steps forward how are you now I feel like a year on self-development wise is I've really learned that I can't control anything (laughs) Mm. the silver lining is that I don't want to say oh I'm thank- so thankful this happened to me. Yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not, I don't want to say that, but I don't think I would have been able to relinquish control like I can now if something like this profound event didn't happen to me, mm-hmm. where now things happen at work and I just go, oh, well. Yeah. Like it's, I just kind of go, can I do something about it? No. Well, I'm going to let it go. And there's a saying that um, I've got a bracelet made up of it. It's um, this this storm will pass Mm -hmm. and it will because it reminds me that in the darkest moment and it's pelting with rain like it was in the park that day Mm -hmm. and how horrible everything was, the storm will pass, the the sun's going to come out again. And then the storm's going to come again. (laughs) It's, it's, it's the, it's just the way of the world nature is. And that's really what I've come to realize and that's really settled my soul where in those really dark moments because they're going to come and I know they're probably going to keep coming for a very long time and maybe for the rest of my life hopefully not as bad but that's what I'm preparing for but I know that it's a wave it's a storm and it will pass and the sun will come out again yeah And something you mentioned was that journaling (laughs) and you were writing down what you were thinking or feeling on a particular day just to show your therapist. Did you continue doing that? I've had a love-hate relationship with journaling. So so even pre-pregnancy, it was my thing to sit down, do my makeup and then write a one-page journal entry every single morning. And it was basically, it was a technique that I learned a while ago, just a mind dump. So you start the day fresh or sometimes I'll do it in the evening as well. So anything that happened that day, I dump it on a page and done. When you have trauma, it's impossible because the pressure of trying to justify how you feel and put what you're feeling into words it was so hard and I gave it up essentially and I was like I can't journal this is impossible even the practice of self-compassion 
that, that was a really big thing that I was really focusing on, just being compassionate with myself and forgiving myself for everything I felt that I had, in quotation marks, done wrong. Yeah. And I found that the only way I could really do it is just do a sentence a day. Hmm. And it was really just a before I was going to sleep or trying to go to sleep and I open up just Apple notes and just put in a sentence and saying, okay, what, what was happening today? And what was I feeling today? That was it. And I didn't try to justify it. I didn't try to put meaning to it. I just would basically state it is what it is. And once I took the expectation away that I had to justify how I was feeling, it became a lot easier. And then I could just present it to my therapist. Um, So I did that initially for two weeks. And after that, I basically pick it up when I'm going through a hard period or if I know I'm going through a hard period. For example, leading up to the one year, I picked it up again and just made sure that I was really proactive about it. But I I try not to give myself another job to do when you're trying to do a hundred million things. (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> as, as you do as a new parent. <laughs> mm. And that self-compassion, is that something you think you've developed? Yes, definitely. It's um, My therapist walked me through a visualisation task and a meditation task, and it basically involved imagining yourself as a child, as a mm. baby, like, like you're seeing your baby there. And they've done nothing wrong. They're so vulnerable. There's there's nothing wrong. And then you imagine yourself as that baby. And you've come into this world. And it's basically then walking yourself through various stages of your life and recognizing that you're there, you're existing. And it's not it's not saying whose fault it is, but it's basically saying you're just you and you're still loved. Yeah. And it's not to sound too wishy-washy because um, I love aff- it's a love-hate relationship with affirmations. And so I'm very wary about like I don't want to feed into the toxic positivity where you no. think mental health away and um, do anything like that. Mm. But it's one thing to say the words and it's a lot of work to believe them. Yeah. Because um, that's one thing when I was learning self-compassion, my therapist will say, do this. And I'm like, I understand and I agree with you, but I don't feel it. Mm. it's I I still feel like it's my fault I Mm. still feel like if I perhaps did a little bit more research or if I told them to go away or I said no I don't want forceps or I would like a cesarean or all these other options and I was empowered maybe none of this would have happened Mm. and it's hard to say an affirmation and to believe it that's the challenge And I think that's where it is hard. It is absolutely hard, but it is powerful to be able to sit down and look at yourself and just say, yes, this shitty thing happened to you, but it's not your fault. And just to be like saying you're still worthy of of everything in your life. You're still like you you don't need to justify your worth. You just, you're worth it because You you are here. Yeah. That's it. It's, um. It's hard to believe it, mm. especially when you're in the midst of it. When someone's telling you this, you kind of go, mm, I don't believe you, but thanks. Mm. It takes a lot of work. Yeah. And the question I kept asking my therapist was like, but how? How do I do it? Like I want to do the work, but what exactly is the work? How do I retrain my brain? And that's where talk therapy and that um, we did guided meditation a couple of times, especially when I was spiralling. Mm. where really we had to kind of calm everything down and 
Yeah. Essentially just breathe. It's funny how primal things of just breathing helps you out of a situation like that, especially when the mind takes over. And I mean, anxiety, trauma, it is very body. (laughs) The logical part of our brain shuts down. So sometimes (laughs) the behaviors that we need in that moment is to focus on calming the body. And then sometimes the mind will follow after that. Once the mind knows the body's safe. That's it. Yeah. And a question. Do you feel like you've forgiven yourself? Sometimes. Sometimes, (laughs) I'm trying, and this is where self-compassion comes in because I feel like I did everything that I could. Mm. And it's it's very easy for when you go through these stages of grief, which is essentially what it is, Mm. that you start blaming people. Mm. And I was blaming healthcare professionals for a while. It's like, they're not doing enough for me. And then that got redirected on myself again, saying, I'm not doing enough for me. And I wish I could have done more. And I'm still grieving for my body. And I'm still grieving for everything that I probably can't do anymore. And I'm relearning what I can do. And so I guess, is there anything to forgive? Probably not. It's just, it, this is just what happened. And some things perhaps could have been done differently, but perhaps everything was done so I didn't die, so my son didn't die. Like if forceps wasn't used, maybe he would have died. I don't know. It's all these what ifs. So I'm not sure if I can say if I've forgiven myself because I sometimes I've I've pretty much learned this thing that there's nothing to forgive. Mm. And I think what has really happened over time is slowly I've actually accepted that, that there really is nothing to forgive. Yes, I still self-blame. Yes, I still spiral and I cry and I cry thinking, what has happened to me? Why did this happen? Why did this happen happen to me of all the people? Like I thought I did everything right. Mm. What did I do wrong? But then I, I come out, the storm passes, and I go, it's okay. There's nothing to forgive. It's okay. This is the way it is now. Mm. And even that in itself is sad. <laughs> it's like that sad acceptance of, I wouldn't say giving up, but just this is my life now, and I just have to learn what this new normal is and navigate that in the best way possible because none of us make it out alive. <laughs> none of us make it unscathed. It's um, You're a very lucky person if you make it to the end of your life and you have no injury, mental injury, physical injury, emotional injury. It would be a unicorn if that happened to you. So I guess I take comfort in that. That common humanity. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah. Um, during birth and that early postpartum period, I'm not going to say prevented anything, but what do you think would have helped you feel more supported during that time? What do you think would have helped in some way to make that situation just even a minuscule bit easier? I think you're definitely right where some things you just can't prevent. So even something that could take a second could leave an imprint on your soul. So what could have helped through that period? I think our overrun healthcare system as it is mm. <laughs> um, needs a bit of an overhaul. And I remember I was going to my appointments and they weren't sending their results to my doctors. And it was just, there was no central body to help everyone communicate with each other. And my therapist was like, you have to be your own healthcare advocate. And I remember thinking, how can I do that? I can't even control what's happening in my life at the moment I don't even know where I'm going how can I then manage 
to be my own healthcare advocate where I need to bring all these parties together to help treat me? How do I get second opinions when I don't like what one person has said to me? It just seemed like an impossible task. And I think there needs to be a more centralised unit of care where there's some person assigned to us as our healthcare advocates. It should be someone who's unbiased to bring all communities together so they can best treat that person. So be it your midwife, your obstetrician, your naturopath, your chiropractor, your women's health physiotherapist, um, your GP, everyone who is part of your health, physical, mental, emotional, should be reporting back to this person. They can understand the medical jargon. They can understand what's going on. So they can kind of go, right, this person has gone through this experience. What things do we need to put in place now to help them? Like that that midwife that comes out to your home, if you're in New South Wales in those first few weeks, it's it's that kind of care that someone that comes out and just touches base with you and talks to you and sits down with you, um, but more on an ongoing basis. But they also like I said, just connect all the medical history together in one central place to then, I wouldn't say to diagnose you or to um, tell you what to do, but to gather everything together and say, okay, physiotherapist, just so you know, Monique's suffering PTSD symptoms right now and telling her that she's going to be like the chance that she'll wear a pessary for the rest of her life, probably don't have that definite answer right now. Just say, let's wait and see. And then when she's in a more stable mind frame and can take a, a diagnosis like that, then we give her more information because um, I it's really important that we're real mm. about any sort of injury or diagnosis, but we also need to be aware that sometimes a diagnosis can spiral someone even further unnecessarily when if we just delayed it or reworded it in a different way, it could have helped. So I, I wish there was something out there of a centralized healthcare that could it's like couldn't help manage your health with you. But yeah, that's what I would hope for. And I mean it's so hard when, as you say, you have to be your own health advocate because especially when you're going through what you're going through, you're not in a headspace to do any of that <laughs> and go to appointments or figure out, you know, what wait list you need to join. You're looking after a new baby, you're looking after yourself, you've got your own physical and mental symptoms constantly on your mind, and it adds more to our mental load than we need to when we're already struggling. 100%. And I think like if there was someone like that, women who do go through and men who suffer like postnatal depression and everything like that, it'll be quicker and easier to diagnose because they could then refer them on and say, okay, I think you need to speak to this person or perhaps you could do this. And yeah. it's, um, and it puts a lot of stress um, and strain on our family members who see us this way and don't know what to do mm. and so even it helps them to be a point of call to talk to someone and say are we doing everything we can is there something else we can do who can we speak to like what health organization be it ABTAR or something like that that can actually go yeah um here's some resources to help you through this time it's not someone that has all the answers but just someone that can actually help bring everything together and even just provide that validation that hey we don't need a diagnosis if you're yep. struggling that's okay we yep. can find you some support whatever that's going to look like you know it's not an easy thing becoming a new parent it's especially not easy when you're going through what you're going through yeah <laughs> you mentioned ABTA so for those listening yep. Australasian Birth Trauma Association have you been using some of their supports I believe they have like peer-to-peer -peer kind of service 
Yes. Yes, I have. Okay. Yeah. Talk talk to me about this because no one's actually talked about this service on the podcast before. You know, what was that like? What have you used? Have you found it helpful? Definitely. So, um, I, I guess kudos to me and my mental health that way. I was so desperate to not feel alone that I contacted everyone possible. You know how you get that book of brochures when you come out of hospital and it has all these healthcare lines. I think I rang every single one (laughs) and I was just like, can you help me? Can you help me? And I remember a poor person at Panda, I told her my whole story and she was like, wow, you need help. Yes, I do. Please help me. Um, But no, so Abta, they're wonderful. So they have a Facebook group that I've been a part of. But even just going back through the search history and reading other people's experiences, um, for me, who, I like I said before, I didn't know what tomorrow looked like. And I, I found a person there who had a very similar experience to me. And I just messaged them and I just went, it's been two years. Can you tell me how you are? Like, mm. are you okay? And the support that outpoured from her and she just told me where she was two years down the track, it gave me hope. And that's what I really just needed. I was searching for some sort of hope to go, it's not the end. I just needed hope. And so I used one of their services where they did an online group therapy. It was, it was really insightful. So we all had a moment to share what happened to you. But then every week they presented some sort of like a, a resource of some kind about the process of processing birth trauma and things that you can do to actually help through the cycle of, like, like we're saying, the ups and downs of yeah. what happens during recovery. And so the resources they provided from people presenting who are volunteers who have actually been through trauma themselves, it was a really amazing community where it wasn't just as well, oh, we all had a birth injury. It was people who had, and like sometimes trauma came about from people having a very difficult labor or a very difficult pregnancy. And then that the birth was easy, but the difficult pregnancy then led to the trauma. So it was all different types and all different forms. And it was so non-judgmental, also accepting and supportive. It was a really um, good place to be. And usually it's very hard to find that online community, especially during Zoom, where you usually find people just turn off their cameras and sit there and no one really connects. But I think we all made a point to try and have the camera on at a certain point. So it's one thing being a part of, like my mother's group I was assigned was is amazing. Mm. (laughs) But to be part of another group that's actually all living and processing trauma, it just helps us not feel so alone. And I'm so glad that you had that. And I can only imagine how valuable that has been, as you said, to give you that hope that really sometimes that's all we need just to know, hey, we are not alone. And hey, there is someone two years down the road, four years down the road who is sharing their their lived experience and can provide that hope. That's right. hundred (laughs) percent. And if I can ask, how is Mitch going? Because that's that's not an easy thing to be handed a baby and not knowing if the love of your life is going to be okay. It, your loved ones are watching you suffer so much and they want to help you. They don't know how or I just, if you're happy yeah. to go there. he He's a rock is the yeah. best way I can describe it where we've been together now 11, 12 years. So we know each other very well. And in that time, I've seen him cry twice. So in that first week postpartum, I think he cried about five times. And so I knew he wasn't okay. 
And it was just this sense of, I think for him, shock and overwhelm of processing what's happened. But he's very lucky where he also has a really good friend support base around him. Um, His main thing, I think he's very reverted into, um, and I'm, I'm watching him very carefully, he's reverted to the provider. Mm. and being like I've got to keep strong for everyone Mm. that's that's his survival mechanisms he's really gone into where he he needs to provide he needs to do everything he can to help support me and he says I'm he's basically said I'm not going anywhere it's I'm always here he's been amazing when it comes to looking after Levi we're always as much as we can split the duties 50 50 doesn't always work out that way (laughs) especially when you're breastfeeding um and if I tell him what I need he will do the best he can to provide that need he's quite accommodating like that just to kind of show an example of what he's like it's it was really common for me especially when I was in some of my darkest days where I would be on my hands and knees like at his feet begging him because because you're not really begging a person you're just begging anyone to kind of like can you just help me can you Mm. just help me and tell me what's wrong tell me how I can get better tell me there's hope and you know he had no idea but he just got down gave me a hug and goes there's hope it's going to be okay and didn't try to fix it didn't try to justify it didn't try to go you've got xyz for you it's just like there's hope it's going to be okay And we do need that. We need someone on our level, literally, sitting with us (laughs) through the storm. Let's use that. Let's continue this metaphor, sitting with us until the storm passes. We don't need our loved ones to be our therapists. Sometimes we just need to know that they're there and that they love us and they still see our worth no matter what we're going through. So I'm glad you have Mitch. I'm so glad you were seeing the APTA support group. I'm so glad you have a psychologist who has been with you through all this time. It's, it's scary to think and my heart goes out to anyone who doesn't have that support. It's it's a scary thing. Like I think how could I have done this without my team around me and mm. I don't think I could have. I think I probably wouldn't be sitting here if it wasn't for that because like, it, it was hard. Like as raw as I can be, it was the most fucking hardest time I've ever had and I'm still going through it. It's embarrassing. It's humiliating. It's horrible. So find your people definitely find your people and keep them close yeah and I think that's a nice message to end on and thank you for trusting me to share your story thank you to all our listeners for holding space for today's story if you like this episode please leave a review and rating to help me bring you more amazing content join the conversation and be featured on the podcast by sharing your story through my website perinatalstoriesaustralia.com. If these stories are a bit too much to listen to or to read right now, then come back another time. Protecting your mental health is the number one priority. As always, this podcast and its associated blog and social media accounts is not a substitute for therapy or for getting help. No medical advice is provided, only lived experiences. If any of this does resonate though, please reach out to a medical professional. See you next time.